0: The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Russia invades Ukraine and the West responds, and Credit Suisse suffers another setback. Tune in as our columnists discuss our top business stories. This Breaking Views podcast is sponsored by Refinitiv, a London stock exchange business. Welcome to the Views Room. I'm Peter Tharlarsson, a mere editor of Reuters' Breaking Views, coming to you this week from London's Canary Wharf. For this edition, I talk to Breaking Views columnists on both sides of the Atlantic about Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the latest challenge facing Credit Suisse's private bank. First, I talk to Dasha Afanasieva and Gina Chan about Ukraine. In the early hours of Thursday morning, Russian President Vladimir Putin did what he has consistently denied wanting to do And launched a full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Stock markets have tumbled, investors have scrambled for safe haven assets, and European oil and gas prices have soared. Meanwhile, Western leaders are preparing what we expect will be a punitive set of sanctions. Dasha discusses the fallout for financial markets and energy supplies, while Gina talks about the possible consequences for China and how Russia might extend the fight to cyberspace. After that, Liam Proud and I resume what seems to be a never-ending discussion about the problems at Credit Suisse. The embattled Swiss bank was hit this week by a string of reports based on a massive leak of client data alleging that it had served human rights abusers and sanctioned businessmen. Regardless of the legal repercussions, it's a big setback for a bank which prides itself on its discretion. Good afternoon. War has come to Europe again for the first time since... The end of World War II. It's mid-afternoon in London on Thursday, the 24th of February, and we are looking at a situation where Russia has invaded Ukraine. And I'm joined once again by my colleagues to, to discuss this story and the and the many aspects that are to come. Gina Chan in Washington, DC, and Dasha Afanasieva in London. Hi, Gina and Dasha.
1: Hi There. Hello.
0: Great to have you both back. Now, Dasha, if I start with you, I mean, obviously you've been following this story very closely for the past weeks and months. In fact, we talked last week about, you know, you had been looking at the, the Russian stock market and how Russian investors weren't really sort of taking terribly seriously. It felt the, uh, the, the possibility that there would be a full-blown invasion, but that's changed today. So tell us what's happened.
1: I think that's right. Today, you had a massive sell-off in equities and bonds. Uh, in particular, the banks were really hit hard. Sparebank and BTB lost around half of their value. Some of that they've recouped. But you know, Sparebank, for example, is still trading at a third of, of what it was back in October, when it hit $100 billion. So I think now, you know, obviously, markets have no no option but to to price it in. And you often, you know, you almost wonder, because on Monday, it did seem like a full-blown invasion was coming. But I don't think, I think it's Just judging by how Putin was speaking about Ukraine in his address and all of the justifications that his Security Council were giving for recognising the independence of these two republics, it was all incredibly aggressive. So it definitely felt like an invasion was coming, but I think a lot of people were caught out by how quickly it happened.
0: Yeah. And so as we speak today, just to be clear, we're we're waiting to, I think the G7, uh, the, the, the heads of the G7 developed world countries are meeting as we speak. And we think in the next couple of hours, they're probably going to come out with a, we assume they're going to come out with a package of sanctions that is a bit more extensive than what they've announced so far. And I guess part of what's going on is is the market is sort of trying to anticipate what those sanctions look like. So apart from the banks, are there any other sort of big consequences in terms of where the market's going?
1: You know, I think energy prices have gone up, even though both the EU and Washington have said that they don't want to bring any sanctions that were going to destabilise energy markets. I think a really interesting one that, you know, we, we can talk about is, you know, this idea of stopping imports into Russia of chips, of components that would possibly grow its economy, because I think the effect of that is super hard to measure. But, you know, effectively, if it's oil and it's other industries can't get stuff to keep doing what they're doing, that could have an impact on the economy. But I think short of that, the danger is that if the the West is still prepared to import Russian energy, there indirectly because, you know, money is fungible in a way financing military action, arguably, because with each year, you know, Russia has a, a trading surplus at the moment and a budget surplus. So high energy prices are very good news for it.
0: Yeah. So that's the big test for the West and whether they can be it can be joined up on this between the US and, and Europe and the UK. I mean, Gina, from sitting in Washington, you've been you again, you've been following this from from that end of things for quite some time. What what do you think of sort of the key things to watch going forward?
2: Well, Biden and his administration have talked about gradually ramping up sanctions where you've seen them start off by just hitting a couple of the smaller Russian banks, putting more curves on Russian sovereign debt and a few other things. But the first package was pretty mild. Now, given what has happened, We'll likely see a much stronger response where the bigger Russian banks will be hit. As Dasha mentioned, they've also looked at export controls in which U.S. companies that supply chips, electronics, and other components to particularly the industrial and high-tech sector in Russia, that could all now be banned effectively. And they are looking at other measures, more oligarchs, probably closer to Putin trying to get into his inner circle and cause pain, not only for them, but also possibly their family members. So there's a lot uh, left that we could see. The question is, you know, how hard and fast they go, given how strong um, and aggressive Russia has been in these initial military maneuvers.
0: Well, one thing we can definitively say, it was a bit risky to sort of draw to jump to big conclusions in early on in situations like this. But I think well, the one thing we can definitely say here is that the idea of using sanctions as a deterrent has at least failed. And Putin seems to have decided that whatever the worst is that the U.S. and the West can do, he's sort of he's prepared to take that hit. I mean, one thing you wrote a piece uh, earlier this week feels like much longer ago now Gina, <laughs> about how what Russia might do in response to those sanctions, and particularly on the sort of cyber front. Tell us a bit about that sort of what's what people are looking out for there.
2: Well, we've already seen just yesterday, a bunch of Ukrainian government sites and, and other company sites, they all went down and Russia is suspected of being behind that. They're pretty skilled in cyber breaches. So we can expect possibly the the American financial sector uh, be hit, just like they were when um, the US imposed sanctions on Iran about uh, 10 years ago. And we saw JP Morgan, Wells Fargo, American Express and various other companies have their websites crash and um, getting sort of regularly attacked by Iran for uh, almost two years. So those are the kinds of threats where it could spill out um, beyond the borders of Ukraine and into the cyber world.
0: Yeah. The the other thing you've been looking at, and again, sort of looking at it from a sort of Washington, D.C. point of view, is China and what sort of how China looks at this and, and what China might do in this situation. I mean, uh, to, to tell me a bit about how that looks from the sort of foreign policy community in Washington. <laughs> you know-
2: yeah, there's been definitely folks here in the national security and diplomatic circles have been cognizant about what kind of message this sends, not only to Russia but also to China, which claims Taiwan. And the Chinese Foreign Ministry just the other day said that you know Taiwan is not Ukraine, and China's you know an al- inalienable right to uh, that territory. But if sanctions are challenging to impose on Russia because of the role that it plays in the oil sector, then take the world's second largest economy, the world's largest exporter, and that gets exponentially more challenging. Uh, China is a top trading partner for both Europe and the United States. So trying to put some sort of financial penalties on them will be really complicated, and China is watching to see how this all plays out.
0: Yes, I suppose it's sort of ironic, because China's always had this sort of foreign policy position of of opposing, you know, intervention in the affairs of other countries. But when it comes to Russia (laughs) interfering in (laughs) Ukraine, it seems to be that uh, that rule has uh, been suspended for the time being. So Dasha, just to to wrap up, I guess you mentioned sort of the increase in the the oil price, I think was up eight, nine percent this morning. You know, European gas prices, spot gas prices have have spiked as well. What's the dynamic there? Because as you said, uh, or I think Gina said, you know, the US and and Europe have made it pretty clear that they don't want to have any sanctions that affect the flow of or, or disrupt the energy markets. But people obviously are anticipating some disruption there. What's the calculation that's going on?
1: I think that they're anticipating some disruption because even if you kick Russia's two biggest banks, SWIFT and VTB, out of SWIFT or, you know, uh, sort of generally, you know, cut them off from correspondent banks in other ways too, then that could mess with payments. So that could disrupt the flow. The other parameter, even though that's absolutely an unintended consequence from the perspective of the Western allies, the other parameter is that Russia and Putin, in particular, have not shied away from using gas as as a weapon, as a sort of bargaining chip in conflicts with Ukraine. So they did used to turn off the gas in that you know that went across Ukraine. And I don't know if you remember, but there were those winters where in Europe we'd get freaked out, you know, much like you know the last gas price spike. So you could have a situation where, even though I don't think Putin's not going to stop gas exports to Europe, because you can't afford to do that, even though Russia's in very good economic shape. But you could see him kind of toy with it a bit more wreaking havoc. And, you know, and especially when he's got the pretext of like, look, there's disruptions here, it's war, it's extreme conditions. So I think that that explains some of that fear. But, you know, thankfully, we're at the end of winter. So that kind of gives Europe a, a bit of time, but it if you think about it it's a pretty short window to solve very fundamental problems in the european energy market which the bloc hasn't been able to solve so far well yes and yes you could argue that this is that they've
0: been on notice for this possibility since the invasion of Crimea 8 years ago and and haven't really done much about it and it's going to take more than one more than eight months until next winter to change Europe's energy demand anyway there's a lot here to chew on I'm sure that come next week there will be more movement and we'll have a bit more clarity on some of these issues I'm sure we will return to this subject shortly but for now Gina and Dasha thank you so much for your time and talk to you soon Thanks, thanks guys so Liam welcome back to the views room
3: lovely to be here
0: once again, we are talking about Credit Suisse. I feel like we've spent a lot of time talking about this bank in one way or another over the past few months. But we've got a new story coming out, which is really a sort of a, a Sunday, Sunday evening series of stories about uh, all kinds of nefarious activity and sort of dodgy clients uh, of, of all kinds of hues at Credit Suisse. Tell us a bit about, about what came out.
3: Yeah, as you said, I mean, it's a bit of a kind of deja vu all over again. We're talking about a Credit Suisse scandal. Um, the thing that's different different about this one is it's sort of historical in nature. Essentially, what has happened is there's a consortium of media outlets led by a German newspaper and including Britain's Guardian and the New York Times, who have got hold of information relating to about 18,000 bank accounts with about 100 billion of assets, 100 billion dollars or so. And it is essentially a kind of treasure trove of a kind of investigative reporter's, you know, absolute dream of dodgy clients. They really run the gamut of unsavoury characters. There's a, a Yemeni spy chief implicated in torture. There's some Venezuelan bureaucrats who have been accused of looting the country's wealth and sort of speeding its humanitarian crisis. And the headline is really that Credit Suisse seems to have been serving these clients for decades. There isn't a huge amount in there after the year 2015, which does kind of limit the relevance to the current management team. But I think, you know, anyone who spends a lot of time thinking about the wealth management industry, relationship managers the the kind of key wealth managers to these rich people they do tend to stick around for a long time so it's it's probably likely that some of the same staff are there at the bank now that would have been involved in these relationships but we don't really know that
0: obviously we're, we're basing this on the reporting of other organizations and we haven't we don't have access to this great data dump ourselves but what if anything can you say about what this might mean for credit Suisse in terms of like is there a Ah, uh, legal or regulatory implications for creditors of having had these clients is there a sort of you know have they been involved in tax evasions and money laundering or what what if anything can we say about that at this point
3: it's it's very hard i think we can we can make a few kind of quite general points the first thing that comes to mind is is not a kind of regulatory point but almost a political point this has already been raised in the european parliament as a sort of, you know, it's a constant bugbear of the European Union that that Swiss banking secrecy is depriving other governments in the continent of tax receipts. And I think you could maybe see that there would be some that this would kind of amp up the pressure there on 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 other states to kind of corner Switzerland. But the massive caveat there is that the Swiss banking system has has, has really changed unrecognizably over the past decade or so. It it now automatically shares account information with over 100 other countries worldwide, which is not something that you would have imagined was the case, you know, kind of 90s, 80s, 70s, even going back to World War One, it was really synonymous with total secrecy. That's where you, if you're a German, Belgian, French dentist, and you have a few hundred grand to spare, that's where you put it so that it was out of reach of your government. That's really not the case anymore. So, That sort of limits the political ramifications. But I mean, you know, FINMA, which is the the Swiss supervisor, they've said they're in touch with Credit Suisse. So there's a potential kind of regulatory angle there. It's it's hard to see what it is. There's no kind of like smoking gun of like, you know, this was clear money laundering in the reports. So um, you can't rule it out, but definitely can't rule it in. I would say that the clearest implication from the perspective of a Credit Suisse executive is you know, Christ, we've got another bad set of headlines for Credit Suisse. We're going to have to do the rounds of phone calls with our clients, who are themselves ultra rich, kind of millionaires and billionaires, and say, look, yours is not going to be the next data dump on the front page of the New York Times. And that's now really going to be the worry that they've not kept this data secure.
0: Yeah, now I can see that that would be another awkward conversation that would have to take place. I mean, I, th- I think we should probably, we should make the point that Credit Suisse in response to this said that I think something like 90% of the accounts that are sort of, that are subject to this leak uh, or, or been referenced in these stories have already been closed or are in the process of being closed. So there's some sense that that maybe this is sort of, you know, historical stuff that, that, that is being tidied up. And I think Thomas Godstein, the CEO of Credit Suisse has, has actually been public about sort of that they have
3: been been tidying up some some accounts that, that, that were you know. Uh, yeah, they've, they've been de-risking, which is one of those lovely bank jargon words, which basically means dumping clients that they're worried about.
0: Yeah, I don't know how you go about firing a private bank client, but um, but, but that seems like that's a bit of what they've been doing. Um, but you're right, it's sort of, it, it, the, 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 what you can say for Credit Suisse is that sort of, on top of all the other issues that they've been facing, you know, obviously they were involved in the the collapse of this—they're uh, exposed to the collapse of this um, this, this hedge fund, uh, Archivos, They were—they've uh, got all kinds of issues still hanging over them from their involvement with this 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 failed uh, supply chain lender, Greensill. You know, plus a bunch of other stuff. Uh, I suppose that is the issue—is sort of you know if you if you if you're in this if you're in the spotlight and 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 the heads keep coming, then at some point does that begin to undermine the ability of this management team? to try and sort of, to try and get Credit Suisse back on an even keel.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's just, you know, it can't be helpful in terms of management bandwidth, you know, every time they sort of launch a new strategy, there's sort of a new, you know, a new fire that they have to fight. It's definitely not where they want to be. I mean, you speak to people who work at Credit Suisse and it's just sort of, you get someone on the phone and it's like, God, not again. How, how are we having another conversation about another credit scandal? It just seems like this this kind of bottomless pit. So it's definitely, it's definitely not where they want to be. I mean, all, all of this is, you know, kind of represented by their their share price, which is, you know, an, an absolutely enormous discount to, to UBS, which is its most obvious rival. And I guess one way to kind of put a financial bow around all this is to say that They've had so many scandals that, that each new scandal doesn't really seem to move the share price anymore now. They did a profit warning a few weeks ago and it didn't really budge the shares a huge amount. It's basically like this bank is priced for, for maximum bad news and it would take, you know, a real unholy mess to, to, to make shareholders look even more negatively at it.
0: Yep, yeah, that's true. Although I have to say with the benefit of this long experience of writing about banks, You know, I can think of a number of examples of other banks, including UBS, actually at various stages, who've been who've been also in the spotlight and on the receiving end of all this kind of this bad news and yet have managed to recover. So I wouldn't write off Credit Suisse just yet, but they do seem to be making life very difficult for themselves. Thanks so much for your time and uh, hope to have you back soon. Maybe to talk about something different.
3: I look forward to it. Thanks, Peter.
0: Cheers.
3: Thanks for tuning in.
0: This podcast was produced by Sharon Lam in Toronto. Subscribe to Viewsroom and our sister podcast, The Exchange, on Acast, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. Check out our latest views on these stories and many others at BreakingViews.com and on Twitter, where our handle is at BreakingViews.